Good evening, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Hope you're having a nice night. This is Rattlecast number 42. We have another excellent guest, as we always do every Tuesday night. Meg Eden is here, so we're going to look forward to seeing her in just a little bit. Um, in the meantime, I should say, uh, Rattle's a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry and unaffiliated with any other organization. If you see another Rattle, it's an imposter. Um, also, do please click the like button and subscribe, uh, depending on where you're watching this. Whatever you click, if you click something, the computers will love you and they'll love us and everybody will love each other. So please go ahead and do that. Uh, if you're wondering what subscribe means on YouTube, all it means is that um, you tell Facebook you want to see these videos and then Facebook or YouTube or whatever will um, tell other people that these are good videos to see. So please do that. Now, um, we do have a prop later and the prop poem for this week was from the perspective of a ghost or a um, spirit. So you wrote a poem from that perspective. And if you uh, have one, we'll have an open mic at the end of the show. Um, you can send the poem now to openmic at rattle.com and then call in over Skype or over uh, the phone to read it. I'll give you the phone number later. Um, now, as everybody comes around and gathers around, um, let's see, we have uh, a dozen people over on Facebook already. You got a little more than a dozen on YouTube, thanks so much for joining us. I thought we would do a warm-up poem as everybody gathers around. And I just clicked the random button on our site. It's always fun to click the random button and see what pops up. And uh, this is a really good one by Lynn Knight. Uh, I love this line, here in the foothills of the Adirondacks. You can just hear it. So listen for that. And um, here we go. This is uh, the 20-year workshop. And this is Lynn Knight. The 20-year workshop. I loved hearing the guy on the local station in the small town where I lived for 20 years, here in the foothills of the Adirondacks. I was trying to become a poet, and I thought everything I heard could become a poem, if only I could figure out how to make use of it, the way frontierswomen made use of berries for dyes, or stones for doorstops, if doors were there at all. And by then I'd be far off in Kansas, the sun blinding me, the old mule dying of thirst in the drought, my own lips so swollen and cracked I could barely speak, my children woeful at the table. Then Oklahoma, the Dust Bowl, trying to seal all the openings from the heavy black night rolling toward me in the middle of the afternoon. Meanwhile, the foothills of the Adirondacks were often the snow-buried cars, farm equipment, old roads in the woods. I thought my life was inadequate to poetry, and my mind along with it. So often I tried to be Elliot, Pound, all those revered at the time as masters. And I would despair, because nothing I wrote sounded as beautiful or profound as the foothills of the Adirondacks. The word foothills alone like its own little poem hidden in the shadow of the mountains, which, when I drove over them to visit my sister in Vermont, seemed to taunt me with their permanence, until slowly the need to redeem as my own the words of others became less desperate, and even shadows spoke. That was Lynn Knight reading her poem, The Twenty-Year Workshop. Uh, and that was from Rattle number 50, and uh, Lynn Knight was the guest on Rattlecast number maybe 15 or so, if you scroll back to October, I think it was. So um, check her out. She's one of the poets we've published most in Rattle. She was also the winner of the 
um, 2009 Rattle Poetry Prize, maybe one of those years. All these years run together when you've been doing it this long. Um, now, today's guest, as I mentioned, is uh, Meg Eden, and she's been in back-to-back issues of Rattle back on issue number 48 and 49. She's also had uh, work published in Prairie Schooner, Poetry Northwest, and a bunch of other places. She has an MFA in creative writing from the University of Maryland College Park. She teaches creative writing and is taught in a range of places um, all over the place. Um, she has a novel, post-high school reality quest, and five poetry chapbooks in this newest book, Drowning in the Floating World. And um, here she is, Meg Eden. Hey, Meg, how are you doing? Hey, doing good. How about you? I'm doing great. Good to see you finally. You know, it's you're one of the poets we've published a bunch of times, and um, it's always nice to, to get to meet people after all these years. Uh, yeah, like it was one, one of the nice things about the reading series we used to do was getting to meet people, but now I get to meet somebody every week, so... That's true, yeah. Uh, so welcome to the show. Um, so your book, Drowning in the Floating World, which I'll put on screen here, is about the uh, earthquake and tsunami in Japan um, in 2015, that was. 2011. Oh, yeah. tw- 2011. Okay. Oh, yeah, it was 311 11 huh? Yes. Yeah, so this is Drowning in the Floating World. Um, do you want to start out, um, I mean, just explaining what your connection to Japan is? I, I know in your bio it says that your father... Um, worked there so you spent like half your life there or something like that so my father's worked in japan most of my childhood um and there were several years where he was going every other month and it was to the point where he said if he had realized how much of a relationship he would have had with japan we would have just moved there which i wish greatly that that happened but uh, japan's always been a significant place for me i think that's where it kind of started um and it's just yeah it's it's one of those things that's kind of hard to explain it's just a my heart home. It's a place I connect with, uh, the language I connect with, the culture. I go there and I'm like, this place makes sense. This is, mm-hmm. I feel at home every time I come here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and what, um, were you in Japan during the earthquake or were you in the United States? So I was in the United States during the earthquake. Um, I was scheduled to be in Japan that summer and we did end up going, but that was to Tokyo and Fukuoka. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So do you want to, do you want to kick off by reading a poem from the book to, to let her yeah. get a feel for it? Yeah, totally. Um, I will start with a poem called things to do in my hometown. Higashi Matsushima. And say uh, the page number so I can flip to it. Oh yeah. Uh, this is on page six. Okay. Thanks. And this was inspired by a poem by Gary Snyder. Become a spirit and wander as a lantern through a nostalgic alleyway. Thrift shop in the ruins of mall. Make miso out of seaweed from a backyard. Make udon from the debris in a living room. Try to remember friends' names and what they looked like before they were found. Watch the water recede. Watch someone at the top of the hill build what looks like a shed for a dog. Imagine living in a dog's house. Imagine being a dog living in a neighbor's house. Make a list of places to move to. Go through the house and find what has and has not been affected. Is the milk still good? The natto? Make a map of where all the buildings used to be. Go to the woods to find something living. Go find a fox. Ask how many tails it takes to outsmart disaster. Tell the fox what it means to be a survivor and watch the fox tend to its young. 
Think about what it's like to be the tsunami, filling the earth, subduing it. To be fruitful and multiply, multiply, multiply. Dominion over fish, birds, and over every living thing that moves about the earth. That was things to do in my hometown, Hagashimatsushimi. Shima. Higashimatsushima. <laughs> it's quite a mouthful. <laughs> it really is, yeah. <laughs> uh, from Drowning in a Floating World, Meg Eden's uh, newest book. I should say, if you have any questions for Meg, I'm watching the chat window on both Facebook and um, YouTube. So if you have any questions for Meg, I will pass them along. Um, but in the meantime, Megan, can you um, tell me like about the research that you did for this book? Because it's such a, I mean, the, the notes in the back are um, long and lengthy, and there's so many interesting details. And it looks, it seems like you did a lot of research. Was that the case? Yes, I did a lot. And um, I, I'm going to get into that, but I want to mention the notes section um, because this was selected for uh, Press 53's Immersion Series. And a goal of that series is to educate readers about a subject and to immerse them. So I was really excited that it was accepted for this series because I had done all that research and it was invited to be able to put that in the back mm -hmm. more so than maybe with a typical poetry collection so that readers that are interested could kind of dig into some of that information for themselves. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was just really haunted by the disaster. You know how when there's some subject that you just keep writing about and writing about and you can't get away from it until you've written enough about it. Um, and that's really what happened with me is I just couldn't stop reading about it. I couldn't stop watching footage. I couldn't stop. And poems came from that. So I, I don't know if I had a specific process with the research. I just was trying to get anything I could mm -hmm. for, when I could because it's emotionally intense and exhausting and discouraging um but it's also it was just such a fascinating immersive process of research too yeah yeah i can imagine it was such a just such a catastrophic event um i remember watching you know, they have youtube videos you know because there's so much camera footage um in japan there's youtube videos of just the rising and, and you have one line like it the town swirled like a dishwasher or a washing machine or something. i mean it's just incredible to see and um, and terrifying and, and very different than I thought a tsunami would be. I, you know, you imagine as a kid the cartoon of the big wall of water coming, but at the slow rise is somehow even like more frightening or something that it just doesn't stop. Well, yeah, there's that sense of lack of control, um, just that this was this is home for so many people. And mm -hmm. it was just in one moment, pretty much everything was obliter obliterated. Um, there was one town... Um, Rikus and Takata, where everything was wiped out except for a single town hall. And it's just, you look at that footage and you think, oh my goodness, everything that I value, everything that I kind of rely on could just disappear in a moment. And that's a very um, stirring kind of haunting thought to really reckon with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, you want to read a couple more poems? Yeah, absolutely. So let's see. I'm going to read um, on page 21. Tohoku Ghost Stories, and I have to read this one because it was first published in Rattle. Um, and it starts with um, a quote from Masashi Kijikata. Uh, we remembered the old ghost stories, and we told one another that there would be many new stories like that. Personally, I don't believe in the existence of spirits, but that's not the point. If people say they see ghosts, then that's fine. We'll leave it at that. Which fits so perfectly with today's prompt. It's kind of incredible. <laughs> I know. The old woman who visits me for tea is dead. 
but I don't have the heart to tell her. Every time I see my mother, there's a pool of seaweed in her room. And still no one's removed that boat off the Sumitomo building. If a boat can get all the way up there, what keeps us from disappearing into the sky? Like the woman who walks each morning across the ocean and back. I wonder where I'm going. What can I talk to my friends about these days? I still have my son who collects the things found on the beach. Someone's television set. A rusted refrigerator. A woman says that soon the city will be filled by God, but is God a tsunami that takes years to drain out? The phone calls I get are from numbers that don't exist. My husband calls his friends several times a day. How are you? How are you? Just in case, Otsuchi becomes a great washing machine again, tumbling us in and out of memories. It's come to the point I can't even go out in the rain anymore. That's when I see puddles like the eyes of dead people. What can I do? Put them in a cup. My daughters were lined up like bowling pins outside the school, waiting for the earthquake. Why didn't I keep her home from school that day? She complained about her throat. Every day someone new is sick. Whatever we try to rebuild is barricaded by ghosts. Even taxi drivers refuse to go to Sendai, afraid of catching ghosts. One man's address led to a concrete slab. The man was gone, but the driver opened the door, just in case. I was never high enough. I kept climbing the stairs. But how do you outrun an ocean? With all the old houses cleared and the new ones rising, it's becoming hard to remember what we looked like before. And that was Tohoku Ghost Stories. Do you want to read another one? Sure. Okay. So this is one that um, my book launched right when COVID was um, kind of starting to hit the States. And this poem is one that I guess I've been drawn to since that it's kind of taken on a new meaning for me. And this is called, um, this is on page 37, uh, response to the brother who wants to move in after an earthquake. You are not welcome here. You are contaminated. You have radiation in your skin. You breathe in that nuclear air. You are contaminated. A power plant lives in you now. There's already radiation in your skin, and I can't risk you rubbing off on me. You carry that power plant inside you, but we are Genki here, and I can't risk you rubbing off on us. We want to live. We are Genki here, but he who mixes with vermilion turns red. I want to live. I don't want to think about Fukushima. Mix with red ink. Anything becomes red. It can't be helped. I don't want to think about Fukushima. There are places for that sort of thing. Shikata Ganai, you breathe in that nuclear air. There are places for that sort of thing, but you are not welcome here. Yeah, it's definitely a powerful poem, considering the times right now. 
Um, is there anything you can sort of share about how Japan is now? There's this phenomenon with the mm -hmm. with the media, where um, and and I, we had a um, a huge sort of devastating forest fire come through. Um, I remember what year that was, maybe 2014, 2013. And it was like the only news story for, you know, a few days. And then it's gone. No one reports on it again. And that's kind of, you know, extended, though. That's kind of the way it is for the um, Japanese earthquake, too. Like once the sort of the clickbait catastrophe kind of like, you know, um, anxiety-inducing visuals are gone and used up. They stop covering it. They don't mm -hmm. cover recoveries and how people are doing. So how are people doing? Like how I know Fukushima, they're still pouring water on it, I think, right? And um... Yeah, so that's going to be a long journey. Um, and there was a whole complicated conversation about is it safe or not, um, especially with the Tokyo Olympics. Um, and I think that's a whole complicated thing, but... Um, I, I got the sense from it. It seemed like it was probably not the best idea to have things going on in that area, but there's a desire to make it look like everything's fine. But it, it's a little bit more complicated than that. I think a lot of things are doing better and that people in Fukushima don't want there to be stigma anymore about that region. Like people that create produce mm -hmm. and fishing are like, you know, we want to be able to sell uh, these things and, and they can. Um, so I think that there's a lot that's better, but I think it's so important. I think part of the desire of why I created this collection is because like you said, the news cycle, it comes and goes. And I think we absolutely cannot forget and we need to remember. And um, one thing that really struck me in the research was this um, phenomenon of tsunami stones which were used by previous generations to mark where tsunamis had hit to say, hey, don't build below this, remember this and protect yourselves for the future. But people, of course, build below that. And then this happens about every hundred years, it seems like Japan gets some sort of hit like this. Um, and so it's just so critical that we don't forget and mm -hmm. that we make note of what happens and prepare ourselves in future generations. Yeah, I've, I've heard, sort of had the strange feeling with... Um not just with the coronavirus, but with sort of life in general, that we're all living in like a Noah's Ark story where there's warnings about all these things. And like, are you going to pay attention to the warnings or not? So those those, those um, tsunami stones are just such a, another just great example of the same sort of need to like not assume that what we have now is, is permanent and safe, you know, because things happen. Well, and that was um, an incredible thing with this is because a lot of these towns had had such um, high walls and um, against the water and thought, oh, this is tall enough. Nothing's ever going to go past this. But we underestimate nature and we overestimate ourselves and our intelligence. Um, and so it's just these these kind of scenarios remind us how little we know as humans and how quickly it can be wiped away. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, for me, the I mean, we live in a forest fire um, forest, yeah. and we also live the San Andreas Fault is like right there. And yeah. uh, if I turn the camera around, you could see it. And uh, and we kind of you know we build that whole town here. And there hasn't been an earthquake since eighteen. I think it was fifty two was the the earthquake. But the last San Andreas earthquake was centered in our town, and yet we still sit here and. Um, you know, I, we kind of bolt the furniture to the walls half-heartedly, and and we have a earthquake, you know, water and stuff like that, just in case. But but um, I don't know. There's so many lessons in that, um, you know, heeding warnings and paying attention to history. Yes, because we have to live on. It's not that we should be paralyzed by fear, but we can learn so much from past generations. It always seems like disasters and things like this happen in certain in just enough time that 
the generation that lived through it for it, it is gone and the youngest generation has nothing to base that off of. And, it, and so it is so critical that we pass the information down so we don't just take for granted our scenarios, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. That's why, why books like this are so important too, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but why, why poetry? You know, you're, you've written a novel. Um, why make this a book of poetry instead of some other kind of book? So writing in different modes is so interesting in that way because I think certain material lends itself to different modes. And there's certain things that, like when I am gripped by certain emotions, they're so strong. Prose is just inadequate for me and I just can't. I turn to poetry um, and they're working on another project right now. And it just, it's a novel in verse and it just, it became poems trying to um, articulate certain feelings and emotions in prose. Just, it doesn't work. And I think that's why this just became poems. And it just, that's the form that kept coming and making the most sense for the material. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you want to read a couple more from the book? Yeah. Okay. So um, this one is called Looking at an Abandoned Russian Theme Park in Niigata, Japan, on page 45. And so something that struck me, because I think it's difficult to read disaster poem after disaster poem. There's something um, purposefully exhausting about that. But um, I, I was comforted by moments of hope and stories of hope that came through this collection. And one thing was that um, I'm so fascinated by pictures of ruins um, and in Japan, there are these ruins, they're called haikyo, which is the Japanese word for obsolete hill. Um, And it's kind of also used as the word for urban exploration in Japan. And so I guess disaster brought me to looking at haikyo and looking at these ruins. And it's just so bizarre, because in the 80s, the economy was booming in Japan. And all these bizarre tourists um, and money traps were built like this abandoned Russian theme park. Um, And then the economy crashed. And so all these um, ruins of the 80s of all things are all over Japan with everything still inside, all the computers, um, all the calendars on the walls. And looking at those images at first, there was sadness where I was thinking, wow, how brief life is, how quickly these things we place value in just disappear. but then there was hope as I looked at these the um, this Russian village. Just it was so full of green. Nature just completely overpowered and overtaken it and filled it with kutsu and vines. And there was something beautiful about that. Um, and I was reminded of that verse um, where Jesus says that um, even the sparrows are fed, and so um, even the least of these are taken care of. So all the more I take care of you. Um, and like there was this moment of hope, and I think that's what's so cool about poetry is these journeys, emotional journeys we have as poets as we examine material and the aha moments we get. Um, and so that's really what this poem is, and th- what I just said was like a million times longer than the actual poem. Um, but I think it, I was just doing a workshop recently, and I I walked through that story, and I was realizing that that's I think an important thing to spell out this poetic process and how you go from found material and it creates a journey for yourself. And just, that's why I love poetry. It's so cool. So anyway, I'll actually read the poem now. Oh God of open windows, God of new ruins, God of all things green, God of nine year old festering dog food, God of Russian peasant dancer women, God of many phones, God of outdated computers, God of molded woolly mammoth models, God of broken matryoshka dolls, who even feeds the sparrow. And I'll read um, one more. Um, 
where is it? There we go. Um, and this is about that building. I was telling you that there was the town that was completely decimated except for this one building. So um, I wrote this poem from the voice of that one building, this town hall. Watching the town resurrect, I remain unfixed, mouth filled with birds. My eyes are dusty and split down the middle, my bowels washed in mud. A car rests in my intestines. The dog in my chest just delivered puppies. I've been given many names. Dangerous, Abunai. Do not enter. Haite wa ikemasen. Tsunami. You may have erased my neighbors, but still I remain. I defy you, Tsunami. I defy you, town. I will always remember should you mistakenly forget. Here I stand, a new tsunami stone. Thanks so much. That was a, I didn't catch the title of that poem. What was it? I'm so so sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't give you the page number. It's um page seven, and that's town hall. Uh, okay, I didn't scroll back. Sorry about town. Oh no problem, no problem. We got to see how you how you look reading too at the same time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, one thing I wanted to ask too is you mentioned earlier that you're so drawn to um, Japanese culture, like it's your second home. Um, what is it about Japanese culture that that's different that you find so drawn to? Because I'm one of these uh, sheltered people. I'm like a hermit. I've never gone anywhere in my life. I hear stories about how things are different in other places, but I don't know. So what, what is it about Japan that you love? Well, I think one of the, there's, there's a lot of things I could gush about um, Japan. Um, it, I think the thing that struck me the most is even though I've grown up in America, I've never really felt like an American. Um, the mindset of um, the bluntness and the way people speak their mind and just so many things where I go like, I don't get this and I don't know how to do it. Um, and in Japan, it's much more, um, everything's much more subtle and there's the way you use language is um, very much an implication. Um, very rarely do you actually use all of the words to really say stuff. So much of um, any sentence is really implied by context. Um, and so there's, um, there's just so much, um, complexity to how people are engaging with the language and so when i was there and as i was in that culture it just it felt it just made sense to me the way people approach how they think about things um the way they talk about things and i guess it was it's a little bit more like how i grew up um and so i just went there and i was like i kind of i get how people are doing things and as I studied the culture, I was like, this makes sense. This is how my brain works. Um, and so I think that that's what makes it feel like home to me is it's a mindset and a way of viewing the world where I'm like, I get why they do that. Um, and it, it, it's funny because I've studied Japanese mythology and culture for so long that there have been times where we've gone with Japanese friends to temples and stuff and they're like, oh, what's this thing? How do you like, what is this? And I'm like, oh, well, obviously you walk through the hoops because ghosts and spirit, evil spirits only walk in straight lines. So you walk through the hoops to get them off. Doesn't that make sense? Isn't that intuitive and obvious? And so I've studied for so long, it's um, kind of second nature to me. <laughs> and so it's it's funny. Um, yeah, it just, it, it's just, it makes sense to me. I, I hope that, um, I, I don't feel like I'm being super articulate, but it's, it's an emotional connection, I guess. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks for sharing that. And that's something that I hadn't really heard. You know, it's all new kind of, you know, new explanations for me. Um, I have two things I wanted to ask. Well, first, there's a question, um, which sort of related to what I was going to ask. Um, Akila Gopalakrishnan um, asks, 
uh, if you write in Japanese forms too. I know you do because mm-hmm. there's a haiku sequence in the book. So I wonder if maybe you could read that. Um, or at least some from it. But first, I was wondering, um, do you read, uh, since you're bilingual, I assume, based on how easily... I would not you, say I'm... Well, approximating. <laughs> do, you, do you read uh, Japanese poets? Um, and do you ever think of translation? Um, so I love that question. Um, so one, um, when I was in my MFA program, Michael Collier ran this phenomenal translation course. And it was, we were supposed to pick a language that we connected with and really delve into specific poets and translate their work, looking at multiple translations. So I honed in on the poet Shintaro Tanakawa, and it was a phenomenal experience. And I recommend anybody do this just as your own kind of study, um, even if um, like my Japanese is very, very, very poor, um, but working with the language and working so intimately with these lines for so long and working with other poets' translations of that work, it made me think about poetry craft more seriously. It helped me learn so much from um, Shintaro Tanakawa and how he approached poetry, because I think um, the Japanese mindset for how they approach a poem has greatly influenced how I define a poem and what I teach my students is a poem. Um, And so much of it came from that. So, um, what in, is in short, yeah, yeah, I did kind of do translation and I do try and uh, learn more about more Japanese poets whenever I get the chance. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that the mindset, uh, what is the mindset? Can you ex- explain that a little bit? Um, in what way? Cause I think that could, <laughs> that could be like a whole night. Of kind of well, I don't know. Just, um, just what were you thinking? You know, what, what does that mean to you? Um, well in, it means a lot of things in a lot of different ways. Um, I think the way I think of the mindset is a lot in how ideas are communicated and the kind of logic and reasoning behind things. Um, I think there's so much of a value towards respecting another party um, and not trying to, and thinking very carefully of how what you might say or do might bring disgrace to them unintentionally. And that's the kind of thing I'm always constantly thinking about obsessively kind of, Um, but the language and the culture are so towards that and saying things in such a way where you're never embarrassing somebody potentially. Um, there's so much of saying like, perhaps um, there's a great example from um, it, Dave Barry, the com- the com- comic writer wrote actually a really uh, great guide on Japan. And one example he used is um, it, he wanted to get a plane ticket somewhere. And the woman said, perhaps you'd like to ride a train instead. Um, and that's the way of saying there are no plane tickets. You you would have to get a train, but it's this kind of art of suggestion. And so I think that that's, there's a lot of parts of the mindset, but I think that's when I resonate with most. Um, and with poetry, I, I hope this kind of answers your question, but um, when I was reading Shintaro Tanakawa's poetry, something that just really struck me, and as I studied haiku, all of it is, there all of those um, examples, there's such a um, journey of exploration to aha moments. It's examining the details, being mindful in the moment and having this realization. And Shintaro Tanakawa's poetry is just so inventive and magical and surprising. And I was really inspired as I worked on this um, to um, incorporate some of that magic in how I was viewing disaster. I think that that allows you some sort of sense of feeling of coping and control when you can create out of something that's so ugly and broken. Um, and I, I would argue that that's a very Japanese concept. Um, 
it's a very spiritual place, but not in the way that we define spiritual. Um, the magic is in the everyday and the yokai and the kami and it, all the yude, those are all just in everyday life. And so I think that there's this sense of that being very natural um, and very commonplace in everyday. And I think that that kind of comes through in certain schools of Japanese poetry. Um, and I think that that's just so fresh and interesting and it made me enjoy trying to think about finding the magical in the everyday. Do you think, um, in your, from your perspective, um, I've always felt reading Japanese poetry that, that the main quality is timelessness. There's sort of the mm -hmm. sense that everything's happening at once and we're sort of repeating. Um, I, I was trying to look up the, I can't remember the exact wording of it, but there's that poem, the, um, um, the field, the, the old war field memorial, I think it's mm -hmm. uh, Basho and, and, and the flowers or so many soldiers dreams or whatever, but you're, there's that sense of timelessness that the, that the soldiers are still there, mm. you know, and because haiku has the cut, which is two separate units of like time and space that are happening. Mm -hmm. I always feel like even when stuff is um, living in the day, um, it's like living in the day as like the ghosts, I guess you could say, or, or like walking with you or something. That's the f experience I always have reading Japanese poetry. Do you think there's anything to that? Or is that because American poetry is so like um, full of stuff? I always feel like, <laughs> you know, it's it's always like, um, you know, a Coke with you and there's the dune, but, you know, there's all the stuff. There's all the present physical details in the moment is sort of and, and there's just like sense of like timelessness with with Japanese poetry. Do you think that's true? I think I think that's an interesting observation, and I do think it depends on the school of thought in Japanese poetry. I think most Japanese poetry we're exposed to, and most Japanese poetry that really has been encouraged because of post-World War II nationalism, are those traditional forms like haiku. Um, but I've been recently reading some translations of Chika Sagawa, who was um, kind of a I guess if I'm remembering right, it was about the twenties. It was like before world war two and it's a modernist poetry. And so that's like so completely different and it's been really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think in all of them, I think a common thread that I see in there, I think timelessness is an, a prudent observation for haiku because it's about um, nature. It's about the season. It's about capturing a moment in and when you're putting all those things together, there is an inherent timelessness to that. When you're looking at nature and when you're creating this aha moment, I think that definitely happens. But yeah, I think that um, also that really that magic is there in all of them. I think mm -hmm. that, and that creates a kind of timelessness too. I think um, that kind of magical spirit that engages our imagination. Yeah. Well, if anybody wants to um, hear a lot more about, um, um, haiku in, in Japanese poetry. Uh, Richard, Richard Gilbert was on episode like four or something. And we talked for like two hours about um, about haiku consciousness. And he has that whole Jendai haiku page where he translates contemporary haiku, which are very different. Like they had modernism too. It's not, um, yeah, you yeah. know, like the, it's not, um, you know, it's not all Basha. That's kind of like pretending we're all, uh, you know, Wordsworth or something. <laughs> I <laughs> so, love the interview you guys did um, in the the haiku issue. That was so great to read. Yeah, that's good too. I, I just he just he could go on forever. It's it's kind of you just kind of wind him up and let him go. <laughs> so <laughs> it's nice talking to Richard. Um, hopefully he watches sometimes. Hopefully he's watching this episode. Um, Caitlin Buxbaum asked if you could tell me about Homa versus Tatamai. Do you know what she's referring to? H O M M A versus T A T E M A E. 
It's in the chat window. I have no idea. Hama? Tatem. Oh, I'm not sure what the homa refers to. Hmm. Maybe if I get a moment to do a little bit of research, maybe I can answer that off okay. the top of my head. <laughs> I'm not going to be the best at that. Okay, well, I was just curious what, what that was. Um, um, where do you want to go next? Do you want to read more from the book or do you want to read newer poems or um, what would you like to do? Um, I could do whatever though. I do have um, newer poems. I think I love reading from the collection, but I feel worried that I'm going to just, uh, it's, it's a lot to read at once for audiences. Mm -hmm. So I can read a couple of new ones. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. Okay. Ah, okay. She, she put the uh, hiragana. So I'll, Okay. In a minute. Okay. Um, so this one is um, this one I do not did not give you words for because it's a new fresh one, mm -hmm. um, which is intimidating. But I thought I'd give it a shot. Great. Uh, being a, it's called being a girl. Inside a girl is a factory that is daily inspected. Nothing is ever up to code inside the girl. Her hips exceed the regulation standard of her genes. Her anger, infraction, her social media presence lacking, below minimum selfie quota, still won't adapt to tampons. The code keeps changing, and the girl must constantly reacclimate to the stranger that is her body. No more train rides, they make her nauseous. No more Glade plugins, they give her headaches. No more cheese. It makes her skin break out. No more long parties. They give her panic attacks. She must relearn where all the switches and levers are. All the while, production demand increases. There are lots of other competing girls these days. She has expanded her production line to become a human Walmart. Something for every need. Mother, boss, babe, shoulder to cry on, daughter, wife, dinner, engineer, grocery curator, emotional cheerleader, writer, breadwinner, house manager. The girl gets tired, but the girl keeps the lights on 24-7 because no one else sleeps these days. So why should she? Because there is so much work to do. Because she knows her work will not end until she dies. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, do you want to do another new one? Sure. Uh, so this one is called Ruins Exphrasis. And so it's almost a companion to the Nigata Ruins one. The Lord is dead, a photographer says, taking pictures of an abandoned church. Who is he? The doctor who writes God's prescriptions. If God were sick, the earth would swallow itself like a pill, the sky collapsing in a silent collision. The galaxies would protest with picketed planets, demanding an explanation for their existence. But through broken windows, the evidence of God grows unencumbered by chairs or concrete walls. At night, I feel the pulse of God overwhelm me. And what does the photographer feel? Above him are the trees silent. In this abandoned church, the ceilings collapse and pews point upward. Fallen foliage become palm leaves 
a dead raccoon, the offering along the floor, a new temple collects two green budding trees. There was another new poem, Ruins at Frasis by uh, Meg Eden. Um, Meg, you mentioned teaching, and I know you do a lot of online classes. I think you've been doing that for a while, right? Yeah. Um, do you want to explain a little bit about what you do there? Um, so I, um, it depends on when I am, but I teach basically whenever I can, wherever I can, online and in person. Um, right now I'm doing a few Zoom online courses on poetry and mindfulness, poetry, for, poetic form. Um, and I've actually started doing one that's themed on drowning in the floating world that's free. Um, and we just talk out a couple of the ways that I approached creating forms. Hmm. So, so what do you think your, um, to students, what is your main sort of, you know, your advice? Like, what would you tell people in general? Is there, is there a sort of a way you approach writing that, that you can share? I think my first goal, um, I teach a lot of intro to creative writing courses at community college. And my main goal is to make poetry not terrifying. So many people come in with a preconception that poetry means Shakespeare, poetry means I have to be smart, whatever that means. Um, I don't know what we're teaching <laughs> people that um, poetry becomes intimidating. But my goal is that first that they would find poetry enjoyable and accessible. And um, potentially something they'd want to keep doing. I think always my desire as an instructor is to bring joy in writing um, and to make my help my students get excited about writing and help them wherever they are in their journey um, to be able to produce more work, feel excited, encouraged about their work, and know they've got somebody that's a cheerleader for them. Mm -hmm. um, why, why do you think it is that, that poetry is so intimidating? Like why, um, you know, since you encounter students sort of who are intimidated, what do you think about it is? You know, we always have sort of the idea, which I'm not sure if it's true or not, but that, that just poetry is taught poorly in high school. You know, it's taught as if it's some kind of thing to be decoded, that the priest has to come in and tell you what it means and, and all that kind of stuff instead of just letting it feel... Um, do, you th do you think that's the problem with it? Or do you think it's something more to it? Because the other thing is that um, you know, just technology changes everything. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there used to be a real sort of use for poetry, you could say, which was like, you know, it, I mean, it, originally it preserved memories because we had the oral tradition and it let us, you know, through rhyme and meter and stuff, it let us remember things, <laughs> which mm -hmm. was, uh, we, you know, and so it's sort of like, um, uh, what do they call it? When that when in evolution you take one organ and use it for something else, it's kind of like we do that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, it's kind of like that in a way. But then you know now we have technology like this, and you don't need um, these sort of nuggets of memorable speech or whatever, supposedly. So um, I don't know. What is it about poetry? You think like where do you think poetry is going, and what's the place with for poetry in the modern world? I think it has such a great place right now, and it shocked me that um, there's not more of a movement for accepting poetry because it is short. You do have to meditate on a poem to really appreciate it. And that slowness, I guess, is a problem. But reading a poem is much faster than fiction um, and takes a shorter attention span in the sense that you don't have to retain so much info. You can read a poem while you're on the toilet and then go do something else. So to me, poetry seems very fitting for the modern age. I think the problem is I think there's a lot of problems. I think the biggest one is how we talk about poetry in schools. And I think teachers with the hope of teaching students how to engage with a text and interpret it 
can make the mis- dangerous mistake of saying that there's one interpretation and it's kind of this magic card behind them that students have to guess. Um, and I think it makes students feel shamed that they're not like viewing it the same way. I think teachers make it like there's one right answer and you have to have all this baggage to figure it out. I think also the poets we're reading, I think they're not bad, but I think if all we're teaching is Shakespeare and Robert Frost and Ezra Pound, I think we're saying this equals poetry and poetry is so diverse and it's so rich. Um, One of my favorite things is to show my students slam poems right away and they go, Oh, she looks like me. Oh, she's talking about issues I care about. That's poetry. That That's meaningful to me. And I think when they can see something that's relevant and meaningful and engaging for them, that makes a huge difference. So I wish in schools, instead of starting with that stuff, the formal stuff, that's what I do for my advanced students. We're not going to talk about meter until you figure out, you know, your subjects and you have something you're excited to write about. So I think it would be much better if in schools we started with something that's relevant and contemporary. And then the students can see the timelessness in those other pieces once they've engaged with the medium. But it's like, how can you engage with a Shakespeare poem if you don't love poetry already? Like, I I just don't get that. Also, I don't really get Shakespeare hot take. I'm not really a Shakespeare fan. I think he's overrated. Um, (laughs) But like, there's so much great material out there. And I wish that students were getting access to that much sooner. That's interesting. I, I, I can't let that go. Why do you think Shakespeare is overrated? Um, maybe it's because I went to a classical school where like that was so much of what I got. I just was like, I'm sick of anything Western, like done. Um, but I, I, and I think also I was bitter because, um, in my adolescence, I was very inspired by anime and I was very, um, I wrote a lot of characters with Japanese names and stuff like that. And Shakespeare basically did the same thing, but no one ever gave him flack. You know, my my um, creative writing workshops would be like, why do they have these weird Japanese names? And you know, and then Shakespeare, you know, would set a, a story in one culture, and they'd have completely different cultural names. And it was like, it's okay <laughs> for him to do that, but not me. So I think maybe some of it was just me being all salty. But and I just never engaged with it. I think there's so many important big themes in Shakespeare's work, but maybe it goes back to how we talk about it in the classroom. Um, I think when we give a fresh angle on it and make it so that you can find your personal connection with that material, then it's more meaningful. But I guess the, the way that it was introduced to me, I never felt any emotional attachment. There were so many stories I did and so many things that excited me and interested me and just Shakespeare never did. And I never felt like doing the work to make him fit for me. I was like, there's so many other great writers out there. I'd way rather talk about them. Everyone talks about Shakespeare give someone else the spotlight for a little bit. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that. <laughs> um, um, let's see. So um, Aspen Crest over here noticed something that I didn't. Everybody loves your Twitter handle, by the way, which is oh, confusing. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and your Twitter handle, you say, I didn't notice this, but um, Aspen Crest says, at what age were you told you were on the spectrum? Cause your pro- Twitter profile says actually autistic, which is a great question because I just, I haven't really announced it anywhere except for telling some people. But we're doing a um, tribute to neurodiversity issue um, next year, um, which is just going to be fascinating to see how that interacts with poetry. So um, can you just say about a little bit about, um, like, like she uh, Aspencrest asked, um, um, at what age did you sort of realize you're on the spectrum, which is an interesting question. But then how does it affect your poetry too? 
Yeah, so I'll try and keep this succinct. Um, so I have never been told I was on the spectrum. I have discovered that I was on the spectrum. Um, I actually, I'm surprised it says it's still on there on my Twitter profile. I think I removed it because I'm in the process of wanting to get formally diagnosed. Hmm. And I strongly believe I'm on the spectrum. I think all the evidence points towards it. But I came to a certain point where I was like, I don't want to um, shout that into the world until I have a formal diagnosis because um, I don't want to be confusing. But I believe I'm on the spectrum. Every single thing I've read about being on the spectrum, anything of, do you ever do this? Do you ever think this? I'm like, yep, me, me. Um, and so in short, my journey was in college. Um, I had left my environment that was normal to me. Um, I started becoming overstimulated, overwhelmed in ways I never had before. I had no idea what it was. I started um, studying autism um, and kind of created a major that was involved with studying autism. And I read the book um, Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. I think that was kind of the gateway for me. I know that that character is not um, expressly described as being on the spectrum, but I read it and I was sobbing and was like, this is me. I have never heard somebody describe these things, but this is how I think. And I did not know other people thought this way. Um, I didn't know it was weird to think this way. Um, and so that's kind of the synopsized version that kind of got me into this exploration of learning about autism and I believe I'm actually autistic. Um, I will update once I have <laughs> talked, it, it kind of gone through a more formal process. Um, but as it, that relates to writing, I think it was it, that happening in college was such an interesting journey because it opened up so many memories of when I was younger. I didn't speak until I was about three. I remember going through speech therapy. Um, I remember being asked about what things were, objects being held up to me. And in my head, I knew I was like, that tastes like pennies. That's at a park. And I had such a sense of what was going on, but I didn't know how to word it. And so it unlocked so many memories for how I was viewing the world. And I think that, that that's so critical for any writer to think to go into an act of discovery of how they uniquely view the world. And so I think the the ASD thing opened up a doorway for me to kind of explore how I think about the world in a way that is unique. Um, and so that helped me kind of with my voice and my confidence in my writing that I have something interesting to say, um, because I would share those kind of stories and people were like, oh, really? That's weird. And I was like, oh, I thought everyone didn't speak till they were three. You know, and I, it, people were like, oh, you know, my 14 month old or whatever age is normal for kids. I have no idea what age is normal for kids to speak because I spoke at three and I thought that was just what people did. So, and I'm an only child, so there were no um, other comparisons. Uh, so, yeah, I think it, any kind of self-discovery journey is so critical for any writer. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Um, it's, it's an issue I'm really looking forward to. It was Megan's idea, but um, um, when she said it, I thought, yeah, that'd be really cool, because I don't know a whole lot of poets that are on the spectrum, but but just the, the way it's a different perspective on the world would be so fascinating to see what the um, how, it, how it might be different. So do you think it has any effect on your poems? I mean, they're very imagistic, um, and that might be, like, they're sort of leaping between images. Is that possibly an aspect i think there's two things one because i didn't speak till a late age and i do go nonverbal. poetry is a way i found to communicate hmm. when i'm overstimulated when i'm over i told you how when i'm feeling certain emotions i can only write poems yeah um, so i think writing i realized that my autism probably helped make me gravitate towards writing as a medium of communication and being able to find a voice um there was something else i was going to say about that um, the content. Oh, there's a stereotype that people on the spectrum 
lack empathy, which is a whole misinterpretation of how um, neurodiverse um, spectrum folks empathize and how we express empathy. Um, but I feel things very, very hard. And everyone on the spectrum feels things very, very hard. They just express it differently. And so I think if you read my poems, if you read Drowning, I think you can see that I feel things very, very hard. A lot of people read it and thought I had experienced this, that I had been um, in Fukushima. And no, it's that um, it's that I absorbed that and I felt like I was there. And I wrote poems feeling like I was there. And I know that that sounds like hyperbole and to some degree it is, but I do think um, autism makes me feel things so strongly and so viscerally and that's where perhaps that imagery is coming from in the poems because I'm feeling that so strongly. That's how I can convey that feeling. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. We'll have to talk about it more maybe as we start to put together this issue. Um, yeah. I'm excited for it. Um, uh, before we leave, I wanted to let you read maybe another poem or two, but um, you also have this novel, um, which is um, uh, post-high school reality quest yeah <laughs> i couldn't read my own writing for a second but um can you talk a little bit about that just to let people know what you're doing there and, and how is writing that a book you know like most poets um wish kind of want to write a novel but never have <laughs> i think that's kind of the normal um state yeah. like we all have this like fantasy of that of, but you actually did it so what um what is the novel about and um and what was it like writing it as compared to poetry yeah, um, so the novel is about a girl who thinks she's stuck in a classic text adventure game, and you're trying to figure out if she's really in the game or if it's all in her head. Um, so that was part of me channeling my neurodiversity as well, um, coping with kind of things I dealt with in college. Um, yeah, the process is different in that I think a poem is about a moment and a novel is more about a journey. That's kind of a generalization. It's not always that simple. But I think I... I learned something through writing a novel. There's something I have to learn that I need to be taught. And I gravitate towards material in a novel that is used to teach me in the end. Um, and so it's a different kind of emotional journey than with a poem. And it's hard for me to articulate how, what the process is differently. Um, Cause I mean, I just write stuff and then I just kind of see where it goes. Mm -hmm. um, but a poem is more like this thing interests me. Let me meditate on this thing and describe this thing. And a novel is more like a, I'm really struggling with coping with change or I'm struggling with accepting that I can't control everything or I am overstimulated, overwhelmed by this terrifying world. And how as a neurodiverse person do I survive in this? Um, and it's kind of those issues that I think ground a novel where it's like, I need to learn how to deal with this thing and I need to figure it out. And a novel allows me the space to do that. Mm -hmm. and it's a very spiritual process in that way because I don't always know what I'm trying to learn. I just articulated it probably in a way more articulate way than when I typically enter a novel. I'm like, I'm upset about a thing and I don't quite know what it is. <laughs> um, but God really uses that to teach me something about myself, something that is not working in me, something that I need to be humbled in. And the process of a novel teaches me that in a way that a poem doesn't. That's really interesting. A great, yeah, great explanation. Um, and how has your experience as an author been different between a novel and um, a, and a book of poetry? Um, 
do you, you know, you've published a bunch of chat books, but, but this novel too, and then this, this new book, um, the, I think poets, at least <laughs> I, myself too, had this also had this fantasy that when you publish a novel, there's like a bigger audience and, um, <laughs> and like, maybe you'll even have like a review of it or something. Right. Is, is that your experience? Is there more of a market or is that just a, a poet's fantasy? No, it's true. Um, I laugh because I think the expectation you set as a debut and then the reality is always very different. So you think like, this is a big deal. I have a book out. I'm going to contact every bookstore in my area and they're going to be so impressed with me. You know, and there's millions of people, you know, in the area that do that. It's not a big deal to them at all. Um, so it's a very humbling experience. At least for me, it was. I was like, I'm all that. I've got this book coming out. Everyone's going to care about it. And I did get an audience. And actually, I was surprised I got quite more of an audience for my poetry collection than I expected. Hmm. Um, but with novels, yeah, there is more of an audience. If you look at my Goodreads, you'll see that there's a lot more reviews on my novel than my poetry collection. Um, but I think no matter what you're writing, you've got to write it because you need to write it and not set your expectation or your hopes on how what kind of response you're going to get because you're guaranteed to be disappointed. In my debut group, you know, there's people that are the New York Times bestsellers. Those are with five, big five presses. You know, people that, where I was like, oh, gee, they got all this marketing campaign. They must be really happy. And, you know, they've got problems, too. And they've got um, frustrations with the process and disappointments. And so I think whenever the grass is always greener and whatever we think is we're going to get out of it, it's going to be disappointment. So I'm, I'm having to relearn how to have joy purely in the act of creating and saying what I care about, as opposed to hoping that I'm going to get something out of it from my audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a big thing for me publishing a book um, for which is 10 years ago now. And uh, just the the, I don't know, like, it's sort of, you had to relearn how to just enjoy writing, you know, for mm -hmm. itself after you do that, because it becomes sort of a, a business thing or something, which is just gross. <laughs> it's transactional. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned, though, I just want to ask really quick. Um, yeah, you said you had a, a bigger audience than you thought for this book. Uh, did that yeah. have? Um, was there a crossover? Did, did readers from the novel come to poetry? Because that would be interesting if it works. I think what was interesting is the Japan connection that Japanophiles and a lot of kind of the audiences that was already hitting. So with my novel, I go to a lot of video game cons uh, because it's about a girl in a video game. And so I think the fact that this collection is about Japan and there's mythology and a lot of things that have a general, a, a larger general interest than just purely that these are just poems and that's it that you can say about them. I think that that engaged audiences um, I know that when I was setting up blog tours for stuff, I just kind of threw in the blurb about this. And I was like, oh, hey, you know, and if you want to join this blog tour and people were just like, yes, that sounds really interesting. So I think the subject matter lent itself to that. And so there was a little bit of crossover mm -hmm. um, and that was encouraging. I think also the other thing is how I had changed my expectations from the first one. I was like, everyone's going to read this and it's going to be a big deal to nobody's going to read it. It's a poetry collection. <laughs> so anything I got was just so encouraging because of how I shifted my attitude. Um, so it's, it's not a joke when they say that 99% of what happens is your attitude more than really what's happening in your life. Um, I think that that that's made the poetry launch experience much more uh, positive for me. Yeah, thanks. Another another good piece of advice. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah. Do you want to do you want to finish this out with a, a poem or two? Sure. Sorry, I have to. I it was shuffling things because the cat was lurking onto my food and drinks. So <laughs> that's okay. okay we love we love uh, we love pet cameos on the show. Everybody <laughs> always does. So if if they if the cat can jump up on the chair, we'll get more 
clicks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. True. Maybe it'll happen the last few minutes. <laughs> this is an old one I dug up. Um, it's called In the Woods, My Uncle. And it's one of those ones that kind of sat in my meth bin for a while. And then I looked at it again. I was like, I actually really like this. Um, and perhaps especially right now of realizing that everything's in seasons and that what we're experiencing right now is not it's new in so many ways, but every generation has gone through struggles and future generations will go through struggles. Um, and this poem made me think of that. In the woods, my uncle digs for old bottles. He finds them in pieces, the lips, the base, but rarely full. He lines them up above the fireplace, their molasses blue bodies catching the light. How many dead men are in his living room, lined up inside those bottles? What would they think of my uncle, digging for an empty thing? Imagine a hundred years from now, a collector displaying empty prescription bottles, admiring their cracked orange glow, studying the names on each label, wanting to know who once took this medicine, wanting to believe that person was not so different than he is now and finding comfort in that thought. That was In the Woods, My Uncle from Meg Eden. Uh, do you want to read the last poem that you sent? Oh, uh, yeah. What What do I want to end on? Um, that's a good question. I feel like if I pick one of these, it's probably going to be more depressing. Oh, yeah. oh, you know what? Why don't we end? Would you mind reading some of the haiku from that section? Because we mentioned oh. sharing some of those, and we yeah. never did. Um, so wh which one are you thinking of? Because I was inspired by the haiku form in a lot of ways. I think I know which one you're referencing, but I just wanted to double check. Oh, there's one. Uh, I have to flip through and find it. But there's one that's like a, like a list of, there's like slashes between the, for yes. the okay. breaks. Haiku, haiku. Oh, um, the, the Modern Ruins haiku? Yes, yeah. Let me... On page 50, 47. 47. Wait, did you already read that? No. No, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> the bed is made, dishes in the sink, a burial in progress. Old pachinko faces, boxed in the attic, childhood's festival masks. Brimming theme park closet, a Russian village of girls, hand-sewn dresses, box of snake bones intertwined like nautical knots, Polaroid face so water-damaged, more ghost than girl, greening washing machines line the elementary school waiting for class portraits, that single white dress in the closet, farmhouse Havisham, Obedient ski boots line the shelves eager for feet. Last week's snow on the broken karaoke machine, an emptied village. Imperial God's dusty portrait, chrysanthemum sealed, post-war trash. Orphaned mansion crucifix, Mary leaned over the bed, prayer for a punched-in wall. Formaldehyde rat body evaporates. Science's forgotten dentures. Hitora Hospital, perhaps your greatest secret 
is your true namescape. Thank you. That was Modern Ruins Haiku from uh, Meg Eden's newest book, Drowning in the Floating World. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Meg. It's really a pleasure getting to talk to you, and um, I hope to, to talk to you more about other stuff, too. So um, yeah. looking forward to talking to you soon. Thanks so much for having me. This is so cool. Yeah. I just feel so honored that you'd include me. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's great. This is a great book, so I hope people pick it up. Um, it, you know, I love books that you learn something from, and you learn so much. There's so many fascinating details from this book, so um, I hope people can check it out. That was, uh, yeah, thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you. Good night. Good night. And so that was uh, Drowning in the Floating World by Meg Eden. And it is from, um, see, I have a um, review copy or whatever you call it. But um, the publication date was last March. It's from Press 53. Um, and uh, you can find that at press53.com. Always best to buy books straight from the press if you're interested. Um, but an excellent book, a really fascinating subject matter in it. So um, so glad we could have Meg Eden on the show today. Um, now let's move on to the poetry prompt and open mic. Um, I should let you know. Let's see. Um, switch over to this view. And uh, yeah, if you would like to read your poem that you shared, uh, all you have to do is send a chat message to Rattle Poetry. Really quick, Richard Westheimer says he'd like to read his poem. Thanks so much, Richard. I really appreciate that. We'll give you a call first. Um, you could also give me a call over 818-850-7727. And, um, and this is for the poetry prompt, which was uh, from the perspective of a ghost. So if you wrote a poem for this week's prompt, um, give me a call at 818-850-7727. Let it ring a couple times so it comes up on my call list. Then I will give you a call. Matthew King here, Lee Woodman. Um, thanks so much. Yeah, so we have a bunch of people who would like to share their poems. You can email your poem if you want me to show it on screen to open mic, all one word, and that's mic with a C, open M-I-C, at rattle.com. Email me the poem there, like as an attachment or something, and I will show it as you read and give you a call. Now, me and Megan always do our poems too. And um, so here's the prompt once again. Let me... Let me show you that. Uh, that was this week's prompt, which is from the perspective of a spirit or ghost. Now I'm trying to write, um, I'm trying to work on my minimalist poems. So I'm trying to write really short poems for these prompts every week if I get to it. And uh, my poem from the perspective of a ghost is called Afterlife. And I was just thinking about what my, what a ghost would be in my cosmology, which um, that we're all sort of eddies and some kind of current and um, what would I say if I were a ghost? So this is my uh, little poem. This is Afterlife. Only when blown does the candle wick smoke, the shadow of the flame, extinguishing shadow. Lost is the light on the walls, lost is the flickering dark. But rising and fading, finally, I'm filling the room. That was my poem for the week, Afterlife. And now this one was Megan's, who is a, a better writer than me, but that's why we, I married her. Uh, not the only reason. Uh, and this is Notes from the Spirit World. It's not what anyone wants. They want harps and cherubs. The world is musicless, wingless. We whisper, we hover. We stand between people having an argument just to feel the vibrations of their anger. That tension, that's us. 
We loiter in Times Square to feel the hordes move through us like fish through water. We don't want this life. Terrorizing is dull. Pranks get old. Eavesdropping means nothing when you have nobody to tell or not tell. You can't talk to other ghosts. They have no sense of humor. You're a sigh in the wind, and that's if you're lucky. God spit us out of his mouth like old coffee. My advice, pick a side. Don't linger in the doorway. And yet, there are rare mornings in the city when the sun is rising and children are passing by and pigeons are strutting and cars are rushing and for a moment I'm close to being part of it. The way a pause is part of what you were going to say, what you almost said. That was Megan's poem from the perspective of a spirit or ghost. That was Notes from the Spirit World by Megan Green. Um, now, um, let me see who we have to call up. Richard Westheimer. Let's pull him up. Hey, Richard. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh-oh. I have to verify it's me. I have to remember my open mic at rattle.com password. <laughs> Hang on one second. <laughs> okay. Yeah, thanks. Uh, okay, okay. I got it. I got it. Um, so here's, here's a spooky action at a distance, or I'm the walrus, with quotes from a George Musser lecture on quantum non-locality. Um, so, so thanks for joining us, Richard. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. And I was really uh, charmed by, uh, charm might not be the right word by your poem, because I came at it from a similar perspective, sort of like trying to figure out where spirits and ghosts fit into my cosmology. And I kept yeah. writing to it and failing uh, until I passed this Japanese maple tree that had lost all its leaves. Oh, that's this that's really interesting. For some reason, so, when I was thinking of it, that image of a candle just popped into my head. So I figured I'd try to make it make it happen. Okay, so here, I have your poem up for everybody. Okay. Spooky action a distance, or I am the walrus. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Sure. The neighbors thought it was a late freeze that brought down the Japanese maple leaves, cascading like convention confetti onto the grass. But really, it was me, or should I say it is me, lying on the ground in all of that red splendor. I like watching these humans try to figure out the world. This one said, trust the scientists. That one praised the rosary. The one down the road believes her Jesus would stand before the temples of government with an AK slung over his shoulder. Yet they all believe it was the late freeze that brought them the red carpet of me, when it was merely me, spooky me. One of them believes in ghosts, but when she sees the fallen leaves, she cannot see me because she thinks we spirits are the dead, that we behave like the living, when actually we are the stuff humans can't see when they see blue bottle flies and A-bombs, honeybees and the fallen leaves. They domesticate the magic because if they knew, if they knew, if they knew, to touch one is to touch the other, that they are connected without a connector. No rope or handcuffs bind one to the other, except me, 
and you, our common origin, us big banged together as our peculiar connection. Thanks so much. That was Richard Westheim with Spooky Action and Distance or I Am the Walrus. Great poem, Richard. I really like that. Thanks for sharing it tonight. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, have a good night. You too. Let's see. Let's see who is next. We got a, several people who want to call in. Matthew King throwing his hat in the ring. Thanks so much. I'm calling him next. And I think everybody I'm calling tonight has been on before, so you know. But if just in case not, um, click off your uh, YouTube video or wherever you're watching it um, as uh, as you pick up. Hello. Hey, Hello. Matthew. Yeah, good to see you. I can't see you. Actually, I can hear you, though. You are live uh, on yeah. the air. Whoops. Right. Um, click your camera button. Not sure what I'm doing here. All right. I've nearly <laughs> got this there. Um, here you come. That? Okay. Can you see me? All right. There. Okay. Well, I see your there shirt. We you got to pick, pick it up a little bit. Sure. <laughs> there we go. Hello. Right. <laughs> How's it going, Matthew? You have All a good right. night? Yeah. Hi, good. Are you? Yeah, good to be. Good to <laughs> yeah, see you. Yeah, thanks again. for joining me. Let me pull up your poem. Let's see what you did this week. Um, here we go. We have "I am the ghost who's haunting me." Is there anything you want to say about it before we start? Ah, well, it's a villanelle. Um, yeah, um, this prompt was right up my alley. I've been writing uh, over the last no, no, year or two. I've written some stuff that has to do with ghosts and haunting. Uh, but I've never, I haven't, I hadn't written one yet from the perspective of a ghost. So I, I figured it's it. So it's good to do <laughs> so that. Do you have like a whole? And it came out a whole a like book worth of poems about about hauntings and stuff. I you know what? Because so. I always had this <laughs> fantasy. Speaking, of, we talk about poets' fantasies, right? There's the um, oh, what is it called? The yeah. Coast to Coast AM, the old Art Bell show. Um, I always imagine oh, yeah. writing some kind of paranormal themed poetry collection and then getting on that show in front of their like 20 million listeners every night. <laughs> and um, yeah, so right. maybe, maybe you should try that out. Um, <laughs> I think you could, that's the one way you is, could get. Is he still on? No, is Art Bell alive? died of uh, COPD, I think, unfortunately. But there's a new oh, host, yeah? um, which I don't know. I'm not a fan of him. I loved Art Bell back in the day. I used no, to work uh, yeah. a lot of night yeah. shifts. And uh, Art Bell kept me great company wow. through those long night shifts at the group home. Um, anyway, here, why don't you read your poem? It's, uh, I am the ghost who's haunting me. Right. Okay. I am the ghost who's haunting me. Stranger, let me help you see what you forget is troubling you. I am the ghost who's haunting me. I know and know you will agree. You're not the sort of person who would let me help you, stranger, see... I know you're not here willingly, but what I've done you can't undo. I am the ghost who's haunting me. You look away, but you're not free to take another's point of view. So let me help you, stranger, see the thing I am showing you, and we will know we know what you once knew. I am the ghost who's haunting me. Bitter I don't mean to be, you did what you had to do, and helped me, stranger, not to see. I am the ghost who's haunting me. Excellent. That was Matthew King's Villanelle. I am the ghost who's haunting me. Thanks so much for sharing that. Another excellent poem. Thanks for sharing that, Matthew. Thanks. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a good night. You too. Take care. Okay, let's see. Next up, I think I saw... I know Vicky Miko... We didn't read Vicky Miko's poem last week, so let me just read Vicky Miko. I think she... um, Let me see. And Kathy Gibbons is here. We have Lee Woodman, too. And we have, it's only 7.18 my time. Let me, Vicky Miko, 
had uh, two sort of um, sequences. So let's do these. And did she say something about them? Let's see. So she said, the first poem was inspired by a short video I took whenever we walk at Huntington Beach at Lowish Tide. Um, are these? Yeah, these are. Okay. Um, at Huntington Beach at Lowish Tide, there are these two buoys offshore that bob in the surf, or rather when the surf bobs, a most eerie thing to see. And then there's a second uh, little um, sequence. Um, the second bit is about the ghost in the machine. Perhaps a quantum bit in a machine uh, can be reduced to those layered equations of sweet, but it will never be able to know the layers of chocolate, how sweet it is. Yeah. Um, so here there's two haiku sequences, fly by night and um, random bits of chocolate. So here you go. This is fly by night, a uh, haiku sequence. When the wind whistles past your ear, a spinnaker moon, dead reckoning to find your lost soul. The upwelling where one buoy rocks its ghostly effigy. A whoosh and a cry past your bedtime of dreams. Sometimes you'll hear the sea when there is no sea. You'll think of me. So that was her first poem, a fly by night about those buoys near Huntington Beach, I think she said. And the other one about the ghost in the machine is this is random bits of chocolate. The ghost tastes what a cubit never will. The fresh rain tangles with the dregs. Bonded in sweetness before the bonbons. The candy bar with no soul melts on your tongue. A delicious noise of abandonment, chocolate. So those were two haiku sequences by Vicky Miko. Thanks so much for sending those in, Vicky. I really appreciate it. Now let's go over to... Um, Kathy Gibbons. Hello, Kathy. Thanks for calling in. Hi, Tim. Calling in from Houston here tonight. Yeah, good to hear you. Um, let me let me get your poem up. So you had. Uh, is there anything you want to say about this before we before we start? Uh, no, it's just a spirit talking in the night. <laughs> okay, great. Well, I have it on screen for everybody. So go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay, it's called Still. My skin, soft paper, flowers shed by stalk to grace the wind, to fly away and mingle with the dusty earth. My voice cracks like a broken bird still singing. My breath beats forth from tapioca breasts, pudding songs to bathe in bubbles for a soul. I am a fact in fiction. I am still here and will remain, embossed, engraved, entangled in a heart or two or three. Goodbyes are only meant for those who leave no thing behind. Ah, thank you. That was uh, Kathy Gibbons, and again, her poem was um, Still. And I, I love that last couplet, the goodbyes are only meant for those who leave no thing behind. Thanks very much for sharing that. Uh, thank you, Tim, and have a wonderful evening, everyone. Yeah, yeah, we definitely will. Thank you, Kathy. Okay, let me see. Oop, so Vicky Biko was calling in, but, uh, but I read her poems for her already, so that's, that's fine. Let's see. Oh, and Lee Woodman. That's who else I was going to call tonight. Um, and I did get your email, Lee. Hey, Lee, um, put, turn off your um, the video, the YouTube or Facebook or whatever, because I'm hearing myself from 30 seconds ago. Ah, much better. Okay, let me pull you in here for everybody else to hear you. Um, are you still there? We lost your video, though. Are you dead? Wait, do I click the camera button again? 
I think. Uh, okay. Let's see. There we go. Um, here you go. Okay. Hello, <laughs> Lee Woodman. Hello. Good to see you. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing excellent. I, I just love these shows. It's a lot of fun to do. Um, so your poem I have here is Victorian Ghost. Uh, is there anything you want to say about it before you read it? Yes, but first I just want to say how much I loved the interview with Meg Eden. She's she's one of my mentors, and she's half my age, <laughs> but a beautiful young woman and a beautiful old soul. She is. She's very talented, too. Her books are really good. Oh and if anybody, um, you know, she read the, the poem we published, but then there's another poem that's completely unrelated on Rattle, if you go look her up, that's really, really good, too. Um, so, so your poem is Victorian Ghost. Are you ready? Well, it's my Jane Eyre poem, um, also recalling all the women in early England's history that were put in the tower and beheaded. <laughs> and um, just so people know, there's a word at the end, oubliette, and um, it's the word for the chute that goes from the tower to the dungeon. <laughs> Victorian ghost. Thinking back to Pomfret Castle, she conjures Henry's Catherine and Mary, Queen of Scots, as she wanders through walls in diaphanous white. A collar of broidery anglaise holds up her neck. A ruffled yoke covers her breast. Shell buttons crawl down her sleeves towards frilly, frilly cuffs that hide the secret of her wrists. Conversing with former revenants, though through language no one can hear, she learns of left-behind diaries, stark warnings, invisible ink. Mostly, she prefers to glide around the tower, passing through light shafts, staring at mirrors. At times, she'll brush her toe along the bronze ring chained to the floor, luring disaster. She's heard the guards whisper, oubliette, oubliette. She knows it's a quick slide down that chute. Oh, very nice. Thanks so much for sharing that, Lee. It's a creepy poem. In the end. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to sleep with a night light on tonight. <laughs> you asked for <laughs> we it. We did. We definitely did. Well, thanks for sharing that. And, and so glad you could join us, Lee. There was Lee Woodman with her poem, um, oh, Victorian Ghost is what it was called. Yeah. Thanks so much, Lee. Thank you, Tim. Good night. We have a few, we have a few other people, but Carla, um, Color Schwartz uh, isn't calling in, but I'll read her poem for her. we have we have three minutes left. Um, this is uh, Carla Schwartz's poem, and, and you'll know her from CB ninety nine videos. Uh, I don't think I saw her on the chat today, but she'll probably watch it later if she's not here. Um, so I'll just read this for her to close us out. This is uh, Carla Schwartz's poem for the prompt: Mother from the soil, your lawn, dear daughter, your lawn. If you don't water will become a wasteland. Don't forget those sprinklers I bought for you. Use them. A drought here. Global warming. The soil cracked, dried. I couldn't help but listen along with you to that book, The Invisible Bridge, while you hauled wood chips around your yard. I cried, too, when I heard Gliewitz, 1938. I'll never forget the flames, the broken glass. 
I was just a little girl then, but look here, my tears still. Look like you chipped that spout on the teapot I made for you. Too bad you repaired and take. Just pitch it into your garden. I want to squeeze clay between your fingers again, wet the clay, and rub on slip as it dries. I want to make you a new pot. This time I will get it right, knead out all the air, bake it not too hot, not too long. But I'm trapped. I can't move through the, this packed dust. I'm rooted like the invasives you battle with. I know how hard you try and don't to maintain all this. I love you, dear daughter, even though you fail at lawn. And that was Carla Schwartz, who is also known as CB99 Videos. You can find her YouTube channel at CB99 Videos, also at CarlaPoet.com. So thanks so much for sharing that, Carla Schwartz. That was Mother from the Soil, another excellent poem. Um, and this is working really well. So thanks to everybody who's sharing these poems with us. Um, uh, you know, I can, uh, we used to have this open mic where people would send me stuff ahead of time. It's so much easier just to have people call in and uh, share poems through email this way. So thanks so much. It saves me like a half an hour, 45 minutes every week, which might not sound like a lot, but I am swamped all the time. Now, um, before we go, I should say, um, do click the like button before you exit and um, drive home safely. Um, next week's show is going to be John Philip Johnson. And he has two books of... Um, um, graphic poetry done with really excellent professional um, graphic designers, comic book artists. Uh, the Book of Fly. Then his other one is Stairs Appear in the Whole Outside of Time. Two excellent sort of surreal poems that we published in Rattle, actually, are the title poems for these two books. But he has a whole bunch of poems, all of them illustrated by comic book artists. It's a really interesting um, book. And I'm curious, like we talked about um, how things sell with um, Meg Eden today. I'm really curious to see how well this is doing. He also kickstarts his book. So there's a lot of interesting things to talk about with uh, John Philip Johnson. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing that. And that will be next week at uh, 9 p.m. Eastern. That's Tuesday, May 26th. And uh, that is all for tonight. I hope you have a great night. And I will talk to you again soon. Good night. Stop the presses. Thanks. <laughs> I'm still here. Hang on one second. Yeah, so um, Matthew King says, Tim, what's next week's prompt? And I completely forgot about next week's prompt. Uh, so thanks, Matthew King, for sharing that. I will post it, as always, in the show notes. But uh, the, here's next week's prompt. It is, write a poem that begins and ends with a question. Not the same question, two different questions. So that's Megan's prompt for next week. <laughs> Yeah, uh, write a poem that begins and ends with a question, not the same question, two different questions. It's kind of funny because I um, <laughs> I was thinking that I made it through a whole show without screwing anything up, and then uh, I totally forgot to do the prompt. So thanks, for <laughs> thanks Matthew King, for letting me know I missed it. And uh, now back to your regularly scheduled little song and outro. Have a good night.